Welcome back to FinTalk brought to you by Vermo. Here we discuss pressing topics in fintech, regtech, covering regulatory, collateral, and digital across banking and insurance and finance. Vermic has been proud to deliver innovative software solutions in the industry with stability and cost efficiency for our global Rostock clients. With over 20 years of trusted transformation in finance and insurance, we're bringing industry's top expertise to FinTalk. I'm Jared Akta, and I'll be your host for this podcast. So welcome to FinTalk, brought to you by Vermeg. I'm Jared Akta, your host, and today we're delighted to have Linklaters. We have Gene Price and Harry Eddis. Welcome, guys. Obviously, we have Hambry, Hamden Turner, representing Vermeg. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hi there. Harry and Gene, is it okay to introduce yourselves and what you do? Yes, so I'm Harry Eddis. I'm a partner in the financial regulatory group here at Linklaters, and I provide advice buy-side, sell-side, and general wholesale markets, and also on the payment side. Hi there, I'm Jean Price. I'm counsel in the financial regulation group. I work very closely with Harry. I'm very much a specialist on the retail side of things. I'm so old, I remember getting ready for the initial set of payment services regulations under the first directive. And now I get, I've got people through too and are looking at the reforms. And as we move into, you know, brave new world of the online and tech platforms for payments. Thank you. Hambry? I'm Hambry Hampton-Turner. As regular listeners will be aware, I run a small team inside Vermeg who do rules analysis and horizon scanning and try and work out what regulatory changes are coming down the route that will impact our product and our customers. So thank you, everyone. Thank Welcome to the podcast. All right, let's dive in. So last year, the Chancellor of the Exchequer announced changes in the financial markets known as the Edinburgh Reforms. So what do you see are the key drivers for this reform and the impact that they're expecting to see from it? So thanks, Joad. So I think just to give a brief high level, and then I'll pass over to Jean. I mean, the Edinburgh reforms are the latest in our post-Brexit uh, changes for the so-called future regulatory uh, reform package. And those are all designed to ensure we have a robust regulatory framework going forward. The Edinburgh reforms were part and parcel of that. And so, Jean, do you want to just take us through some of the key announcements that were made? Yeah, thanks, Harry. So, yeah, the early Christmas present for us regulatory lawyers on the 9th of December last year. So we got the Edinburgh reforms and they're a package of around 30 announcements made by the government. And the central theme running through all of those is safeguarding the competitiveness of the financial services sector in the UK. Of course, as Harry's already alluded to, the background for this is Brexit and the opportunity we now have to regulate differently now we're outside the um, EU and um, to tailor rules better to the, the sort of local UK market. So I would say, though, um, not all of the announcement relate to things that the UK can change now that we're outside the EU. In fact, less than half fall into that bucket. But I still think it's fair to say that that Brexit was the main catalyst for revisiting the, the rule book at this time. Another point that's important to note is that the reforms don't stand alone. Um, they're rather a collection of policy proposals across a variety of areas of regulation. And they've now been packaged together to signal this willingness to reform, to grow the financial services industry and, com- and keep it competitive. We saw you know, a massive outflow of, of business Brexit. And now the time has come to, to, to really save that and consolidate back into the UK. 
The reforms aren't the big all and end all. We're expecting a drip feed of more policy proposals and consultation papers during the course of this year, especially once the financial services and markets bill is enacted. Few of the announcements think are particularly of interest. So, for example, the announcement that the government and the regulators are going to review the senior managers and certification regime. So, practically all financial services firms are now subject to the SMCR. So, that review is going to be of significant interest to many in the industry. I don't think we're actually expecting a radical overhaul of the regime, but the review will be um, a great opportunity to highlight the aspects of it which aren't working that well or which are or and which are administratively burdensome. It is a a big task to get people approved and, you know, to do all the paperwork and everything on an ongoing basis. Another important development is that the government's going to make changes to the ring fencing regime for banks. So this follows this Scotch review, which proposed tweaks to the regime. The one thing that the review didn't propose, but which the government has said it's going to consult on later this year, is increasing the threshold which determines which banks fall into the ring fencing regime. So this currently applies to banks with over 25 billion of retail deposits. The government is planning to increase that to 35 billion. So that's going to be really great news for the challenger banks who are you know, now um, starting to approach the, the current threshold. One final announcement I'd highlight is the proposal to repeal the PRIPS regulation and to replace it with the new UK retail disclosure regime. This is a sort of low hanging fruit for a government which is keen to deregulate some areas to make the UK more attractive prospective. I don't think many of us are going to shed a tear for um, PRIPS regulation, if I'm, I'm perfectly honest. Harry, I think you had some additional views on what the impact that the government's expecting from the reforms. Yeah, so I think what you've said there is very interesting, Jean, and you can see that there's a sort of general streamlining of, of regulation, either um, getting rid of it, such as a PRIPS regulation, or, or making some tweaks to it in relation to the ring fencing, for example. But as I mentioned before, this is all part and parcel of a broader package, and I think you do need to look at the reforms in the wider context of the future regulatory framework review and the financial services and markets bill. Those effectively envisage a new way of making and maintaining financial regulation. So for the past 15 or so years, almost all of our financial services regulation has, well not all, but a lot of it has emanated from the EU, over which we've had very little control. So now we have that control, the regulators are looking to effectively take on more responsibility for rulemaking and also to ensure that uh, there is flexibility built into the process so that rules rather than being stuck solely in in legislation, which is difficult to change, can come into the rule books. So that ultimately will make the UK rule book more able to be responsive to market developments. So a good example of that in the Financial Services and Markets Bill is the so-called designated activities regime, which is designed to highlight areas which currently sit in legislation will actually be brought down into the FCA or the PRA rulebook. And changes then to that regime will then be able to be made by the regulators and not have to go back up to Parliament uh, to get a legislation change. So while this is designed to increase the flexibility for the regulator and make the rulebook more agile, if you look at the reforms collectively, what's clear is that the overall policy direction is not going to be radically different. So it's not going to be a bonfire of all of the worst bits of rules you've always wanted to get rid of. And it's definitely not a conscious effort to make the UK the Wild West of financial services, despite what some in the papers might be seeking to tell you. Although it does seem that they are targeting rules where there was a clear overreach. So for example, some of the funds regulations, such as LTIFs, likely also to not be implemented, or just where they're simply not working as intended, like 
like the PRIPS regime. From a regulatory reporting perspective, the regulator's insatiable appetite for data is likely to be undimmed. So they'll continue to want a wealth of information. And in fact, as they, if they follow through with their intention to adopt a more principles or outcomes-based approach to regulation, certainly our expectation is that the information that they will demand could well increase. I know that's not good news. A couple of things to add. Obviously, I, I agree with Harry's uh, summary that this isn't going to be a bonfire and that the uh, information required is going to get larger. I think that also very much take Gene's point that this is a result of the regulator getting more power to change things and, and, and trying to improve some of the things that, that people have complained about. But I mean, put this into context, what we're seeing is, is really an expansion of, uh, rather than following the EU's lead, trying to take a new direction. Uh, and obviously, it's very difficult to take a new direction if you don't know what direction that is. So this Edinburgh speech is an attempt to sort of set a, a new direction and set out the kind of things that they feel the regulators should be doing. They have not been able to do when their overriding concern is harmonisation with the EU. That said, we're probably not going to see, as, as I said, radical change. The, if nothing else, the budget of the Bank of England is not quite sufficient to change all these things simultaneously. So they're going to pick and choose. I mean, certainly over the course of the coming year, we're seeing changes to credit risk and to market risk being implemented and uh, rather discussed for implementation around about in time for the uh, Basel 3.1 implementation in 1st January 2025. So that's going to be a big change. And we're seeing a lot of the some of the established changes that have been made, for example, counterparty credit risk now being fed through into other areas. I think they are going to ask for more information. The existing rules changes we've seen very much of that pattern, uh, particularly to be in, interested in portfolio level information. So how, you know, not just a big list of, of what's there, but how's it being used? How's it interacting? How's it work? Similarly, I think we're going to see a, a big change in the amount of operational risk information being asked for since they're now calculating that for the first time. So I think there are going to be, you know, uh, some significant changes. I would say that uh, this is very much a, a change of direction. It's a, a, exhorting the regulators to go out and improve things and to make the UK more competitive and to grow faster and to treat the, the EU as a competitor rather than a that said, I would I would suggest that most of the regulation will stay the same or follow the existing pattern that we've got, uh, which is that the EU regulator and the UK regulator sort of tend to follow each other in six-month cycles. So the EU will publish a small change and the UK will adopt it six months later and vice versa. And that's that sort of holding pattern is going to carry on, if only because, as I said before, that there isn't the budget to change everything at once. And if you're not, rather than hold the rules static, they're going to try and keep pace with what the EU in particular and, and, and the rest of the world in general is doing because they're not going to be standing still either. So I think we're going to be seeing mostly holding pattern, but we'll argue some changes coming down the, the route. We, we are seeing the first of those already uh, being being discussed in pros and consultation papers and, and there will you know, be more along, along the way. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Um, so just hold that for because um, as we enter a new financial year, um, firms will be looking deeper into these reforms. I appreciate that you guys have highlighted quite a lot. That, are there any clear requirements it's quite clear that their firms are required to disclose more information now. Can you broadly explain what firms should be looking to disclose now? Because there's just so much there. Any any hints will be greatly appreciated. Yeah, so firms have to, to juggle two types of disclosure, the disclosures to the regulators and, and the disclosures to customers. So on the first, disclosure to regulators, as Hamber has already alluded to, I don't think the regulatory reporting regime is going to change dramatically. You're not going to meet a regulator who turns down um, the opportunity to receive data. And as I said before, if the regulators adopt a more outcomes-based approach to regulation, they may well end up requiring more information from firms to support the supervision of the firm's compliance. You know, we're seeing that with consumer duty. The FCA has already come out and said that just while some firms are doing well, others haven't really 
got on full board with the fact this is a paradigm shift. We're moving outcomes based. So you're going to need to prove that you are delivering on the outcomes. Um, on disclosures to customers, I think it's more of a mixed bag. On the one hand, we're seeing increased um, increasing customer disclosures under the ESG regulations and the additional information requirements under the FCA's consumer duty. The direction is going, the direction of travel is going the opposite way for some of the MIFID stuff. So, for example, one of the um, Edinburgh reform announcements waters down the client disclosure requirements in the UK's MIFID regime. And, you know, another proposes reducing customer disclosures for payment accounts. I've already mentioned PRIPS earlier, where it looks like we're moving away from the one size fits all approach. As I mentioned at the outset, I'm a very much a retail person. And I know for a matter of fact, the more information you give to a customer, the less likely they are to engage with it at all, rather than just reading the first two paragraphs and getting bored. Why I spend my life crafting draft deathless prose, the Lord only knows why. So overall, I think the trajectory is away from disclosure for disclosure's sake, which is a good thing. But we'll have a greater focus on making sure that what the customer actually receives is is informative and enough but not too much i don't know hanbury what's your view on that yeah i'd be inclined to agree with you i i think we have specifically on on customer and and market disclosures we have uh, obviously the pillar three regime 40 plus templates esg regime 40 40 plus templates and these are all information that people are going to be forced to disclose but it's not all equally valuable what we have noticed is that in particular returns there are you know, in many of the returns, the definitions are vague. They're saying, you know, we need to you to disclose this, and it should be calculated on the same basis used in the bank, which is fine, and and, and sort of standard um, boilerplate you get with a lot of uh, a lot of regulations. But some of them are very, very, very specific. They are linked. They need to reconcile back to regulatory data. They are designed. They are, you know, they specifically reference regulatory data. They are saying for this template, you need to compare these measures against these existing regulatory frameworks. That it must reconcile. And that they published validation rules that mean they must reconcile and everything must, must be very tightly bound in. So some of the market disclosures are basically additional slices of reg data. And I think those are the ones that the regulators will look at most closely because they're going to want to compare what the firm is telling the market and, <laughs> and its shareholders with what the firm is telling the regulator. So I think, I think there's a lot of disclosure out there. This sheer amount of information is going up, as, as Jean said. But I think, I think she's right. Some of, it's going to be some, some of it's going to be much more important than others. Uh, and I think it's it's working out which of those, which are the critical disclosures, which are the critical things. One of the things that the regulator is really interested in is is going to be the interesting bit because it's going to be very, very difficult to you know prepare comprehensive explanations on everything. Uh, I think there's, there's going to be a definite need to focus on on what it is you really need to get right, really need to get tightly bound in with the rest of what the firm is doing. I mean, more broadly, obviously, we're also getting more information through the reports that are just sent to the regulator. So things like the, the risk disclosures, things like the Greenfields Bodies reports and and, and so forth. And I think, you know, that the, the appetite for information there will continue. But for market disclosures specifically, they are trying to, to tie the two together. That the, the the regulator is quite sensitive to what works internationally. And they do talk to various people, including us, about what works internationally. And things, you know, MIFID is not universally popular. So it is perhaps being less emphasized. Uh, and a credit was not very, very popular at all and, and, and hasn't reached our shores. And various other initiatives, you know, are, are encouraged or discouraged. I think that the, the takeaway they got from the Pillar 3 disclosures as the EBA were implementing them was that they were, were some of the data was vague and subject to interpretation. And so they're attempting to lock down certain aspects of the data they're, they're keen on into very, very tight definitions indeed. 
and they want it to be calculated, not not um, an estimation justified with as Junk G has said, deathless pros. Thank you, guys. So while we're discussing change, MIFID. So what changes have you seen uh, from the reforms when you compare them to the EU? So I'll take that one, Jawad. So I think the sort of certainly the the announcements which came out as part of the Edinburgh reforms were all part and parcel of a continuation of a theme, um, really, both sort of certainly in the UK, but also sort of consistent with what's been happening in the EU. The primary trigger for change to the UK MIFID regime has been the Treasury's Wholesale Markets Review. Um, this has set out proposed changes to remove certain complexities and inefficiencies from uh, the existing regulatory framework. The Financial Services and Markets Bill is going to implement some of those, such as the removal of the UK share trading obligation and the double volume cap, while others are going to be left to the FCA to implement, such as simplifying the pre and post trade transparency regimes for both fixed income and the derivatives markets. Now, the EU has also been looking at a lot of these as well. It does still have the share trading obligation. It's double volume cap is going to be amended, not taken away like in the in the UK. And it's also looking at a lot of the pre and post trade transparency regimes as well. But I think it's fair to say that it feels as though the EU is, does not quite have the same level of flexibility that is going to be afforded the regulators here. Now, specifically on reporting, uh, the final policy statement on the wholesale markets review has said that the government would continue to work on improving reporting disclosure regimes although a lot of the changes that actually have been suggested are more sort of firm to customer areas rather than firm to regulator. So an example of that would be one of the investor protection reports, which are required to be provided by firms where there's a 10% loss on a portfolio for a client. Um, so that no longer needs to be made. Another wholesale markets review proposal, which the Financial Services and Markets Bill is taking forward, is the change to the definition of systematic internalizers. So the UK test is going to become qualitative rather than quantitative. Now, uh, for those of you who are old enough to remember MIFID 1, they had a qualitative, not a quantitative test. And the result of that was that not very many firms became SIs. And MIFID 2 brought in a, uh, a quantitative test as well as the qualitative one. So that's going to be a shift back to the old position. There are various other areas that they, they're looking at. Investment research, there's a call for evidence on investment research as to whether there is the uh, unbundling rule is appropriate. It's a slight irony given that this is something that the FCA is, was particularly keen on about six or seven years ago. So it'll be interesting to see whether, whether there are any material changes to investment research. In both the UK and in Europe, they're looking at consolidated tape. That is further ahead in Europe than it is in the UK. But again, we're still waiting for proposals on that. So what you can see is these changes are just representative of a number of different changes that are being proposed. And as we've said before, this is not about ripping up the rule book. It's about being more surgical about the reforms, redressing points of detail, uh, which is not working effectively, either in retained EU law or in the homegrown regulations. It, it's quite clear from what's happening both in the EU and the UK that they're looking at, broadly speaking, the same areas to either get rid of or to to change because of perceived market inefficiencies. Um, and it's only going to be interesting to see how those develop over time. Thank you. <laughs> Lastly, our favorite topic, cryptocurrency, um, obviously with the news of FTX last year. So how has this changed the market drive and what are the potential capital implications that you see? So it's a very topical question, Gerard. As you say, FTX has really has really changed the market perception coming off the back of the crypto winter as well, where where there were a lot of market upheavals in in the cryptocurrency markets. I think it's clear to see that that this has 
uh, slightly turbocharged the desire for regulators to get regulation out there. The EU already had its proposed MECA regulation, which, although some people call it MIFID on steroids, it's actually more than that because it's a prospectus regime, it's a MAR regime, it's a licensing regime, it's a MIFID II conduct of business rules regime for the crypto industry, sort of all wrapped up in one neat little package with a bow on top. The UK had not proposed anything along those lines until recently. What they had done is made some proposals around financial promotions, effectively making it markedly more difficult for people to issue financial promotions in the UK, whether they're in the UK or from outside to the to the retail space with and bringing crypto into the into the financial promotions regime. In the recent weeks, though, the UK has issued its own, well, I'm not going to call it version of Mika because they're very keen to ensure that it's not seen to be a version of Mika. But it has effectively brought in some proposals, which we brought in over three phases. Um, so first, looking at uh, stable coins and payment tokens. Uh, secondly, looking more broadly at, at crypto. And then thinking about, in the third phase, some of the additional areas that you might like to regulate, such as uh, portfolio management. It doesn't go in, in certain areas, it doesn't go quite as far as Mika, and in other areas, it seeks to go further than Mika. So in essence, there is going to be a similar form of licensing regime for people who issue certain crypto assets. There are going to be rules around stable coins. There's going to be uh, licensing for firms who provide services in relation to crypto assets. And firms uh, who operate trading platforms for crypto are going to have to produce a, admission a sort of documents if they haven't already been provided. Now, that might not sound too onerous, but if you think about Bitcoin, for example, that has no issuer. So for for those sorts of crypto assets, that's going to be quite a big lift for the industry. So certainly going to be uh, a lot of changes. Although it's not, although while I said uh, regulators are keen to get crypto assets uh, regulated, certainly in the UK, I don't think we're going to see much in the way of finalised rules until probably the end of this year with implementation through next year. And Mika itself is not really going to come in into force until next year so for the certainly for the foreseeable future what we're going to be left with is the regulation under the money laundering regs which is already in existence now you also mentioned about capital implications Gerard, and that also has been subject to a recent proposal from basel this is following up on their earlier proposals it's pretty conservative it has to be said so this applies to financial services firms and their regulatory capital and it applies certain risk weightings to crypto assets and it groups them into into two buckets really those which are properly stable coins which are backed by assets where there's a less punitive uh, capital regime uh, and anything else which are then subject to a 1250% risk weight so it's going to become very very punitive for banks and financial services firms to hold things like Bitcoin if, if they wanted to. And then there's also rules around how much you can actually hold in, in aggregate against your tier one capital, which certainly for the what they call the group two crypto assets, which is the more risky version or the risky criteria, then that's going to be set at 1% of tier one capital. So they're certainly not going to be making it easy for financial services firms to uh, hold and trade crypto in the future. Perfect. Thank you, Harry. Gene, uh, Harry, thank you so much, Henry, uh, for your time today. I know how busy you are so i appreciate your time on this session i think there's a lot of information there so again thank you so much from me uh, and hanbury for your time gene and harry so thank you guys until next time pleasure thank you